All right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan, Josh, Marcelo, and Austin. Today we're going to go ahead and discuss H.R. 1, House Resolution 1, also known as the For the People Act. I'll give you a quick overview and then we'll kind of discuss what we think of the pieces of the bill. So the main goal of H.R. 1 is to federalize our voting regulations, get us some more consistency, and give the federal government control, kind of removing states' individual preferences on that. So what this bill seeks to do, there's a number of things. The first is it would provide automatic enrollment in voter registration, which means you have to opt out instead of opting in. It would also ban state voter ID. Some states currently do require voter ID or some form of identification. Others do not. This would make it to where the states cannot choose to have voter ID. Then you have universal mail-in ballots sent automatically quick distinction. We do have right now where you can request ballots. What this would do is they would just automatically be sent to wherever your address is located. It would also provide for ballot harvesting, which is where parties and affiliates can send out representatives or individuals to collect the ballots and or help people fill their ballots out and then make sure those get deposited. This bill also, what they tacked onto it, I was amused, especially coming off of our last week's conversation. It asserts that Congress has the power to make D.C. the 51st state. And then it also will allow felons to be able to vote and it's going to tackle in some way uh, the redistricting to kind of prevent gerrymandering. So that is a lot. Let's take this point by point. What do you guys want to start with? Uh, I would like to start with ballot harvesting for those people who don't know what it is. All right. Included until about five minutes ago. So ballot harvesting, as my limited knowledge tells me, is uh, a practice that allows for people to help, I guess, or or enable more people to uh, acquire their ballots. And I guess an example that comes to mind that might be pretty standard is when people help older people, like try to, if they have trouble getting to a polling place or if they have trouble like filling it out, something that they might help them fill out the ballots uh, could be used for this practice. In general, I think it sounds like a good idea, but I also think that there's potential for it to be derailed. I would also like to know more about the wording specifically. Like, what does it mean to be allowing for, I mean, it's already taken place. Like, what's the, what's the alternative? Ballot harvesting itself, I don't know, in my opinion, sounds ominous. So so I'll give A plus to whoever got the name. Because <laughs> I also think there's some very innocuous ways um, to think about it. Say you have, you mail out all your ballots and, you know, someone can't physically write it out for whatever the reason and they need someone to help them out. This bill would provide the local, you know, election commission the ability to have, you know, a social worker on staff who is able to go to people's homes and help them out. And there, you know, so there's like a variety of accessibility benefits from this of people who would otherwise not be included, like from this mail-in system. And I think, you know, if we're looking at, you know, what we want from a, a, you know, a mailed election point of view is we do want more accessibility. You know, we gain a lot of that accessibility of, you know, mailing it to people's homes because it was people with a variety of conditions that doesn't let them, you know, leave their house. And so mailing it to them already gets those ballots that we wouldn't have had access to before. So to me, I would imagine this is just more of part of the holistic process process of making sure everyone we do get a ballot out to has their, you know, fair and equal, you know, access to vote regardless of whatever assistance, you know, they may need. 
Yeah, when it comes to ballot harvesting, again, with Marcelo, from my limited knowledge and from the things I've heard about it this past election season and hearing about it on this podcast and everything just now, it sounds downright dangerous, honestly, just to have people going through and collecting ballots. I understand the idea as far as providing accessibility options for people who may need help getting their ballots where they need to go. But I think people who are advocating for these policies are a little too trustworthy of the people who would be going to collect these ballots. I'm not really, I think it might be a little naive to think these are upstanding citizens who are just going to go door to door, collect ballots and take them where they need to be. I think that really just sounds like one more link in the chain of custody for these things that opens up the door for fraud to occur. And I know that's a word that's been tossed around a lot this past year. Um, I know it's a word that's a little bit frowned upon, but if we're going to talk about election reform, I think we also need to be talking about election integrity. And when it comes to something like ballot harvesting, I think the more people that touch these ballots, the more opportunity there is for problems to occur, whether it's lost ballots or even worse, changed or altered ballots. Um, I think it's dangerous. And if we aren't going to have that as a discussion point before we make it a completely federalized, you know, not giving the or making it to where there's no option to where that doesn't occur, making it where that happens in every state from the federal level saying that ballot harvesting is allowed. That sounds incredibly dangerous to my ears. And again, on the topic of accessibility, it I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who would not be able to make it like I don't know, maybe someone is stuck in a nursing home, particularly last year in the COVID crisis and everything. That is a different aside point that really shouldn't be affecting a lot of our reasoning going forward. Hopefully we won't be having another international epidemic that changes the entire you know, way we have to do an election. That was very odd. I don't think you let the exception set precedent for the going forward. But on that note, like we would just honestly, I think it'd be on whoever's advocating for these policies to prove that that accessibility is actually a concern. Typically polling locations are local, they're accessible, they are places where people can get to. And I think that the better fix would be to have maybe people at polls that are able to help people get to where they need to go, but they're able to, you know, cast their own vote without having people interfere with the vote. But maybe they're able to help them get there. I don't know. Again, I think this leaves a lot of holes for people to be taken advantage of, a lot of fraud to occur. Even if that's coming under the guise of accessibility, again, I think it's that argument would have to be proven out. Uh, what I have right now from Ballotpedia. As of August 2020, there are 24 states and D.C. permitting someone to uh, someone chosen by the voter to return their ballots. Twelve states specify who may or may not return ballots. One state only allows the voter to return their ballot and 13s did not specify. I don't have the breakdown on that, but that's just kind of a general overview. It's 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 not nationalized. This bill, if it passes the Senate, would nationalize that. So all states would have to allow this at this point. I think what I have a problem with for ballot harvesting is that I'm, I'm not going to say that it guarantees fraud, but it does open the door for, for fraud to take place by interfering with the delivery of a ballot. So ballot harvesting, like Josh mentioned a second ago, it allows me, uh, currently I can mail my ballot in. It's just the postal office. This would allow people who are potentially and very likely affiliated with a particular party to go out and both help people fill out their ballots and also collect them. The current laws do not allow people to be paid by the ballot, but like, let's say the DNC or the GOP, wants people to go out, they can pay them by the hour. And I think that this has the opportunity to also allow for votes to be bought in a sense to where whoever or whichever campaign or whichever department has the most funds to pay voters can go out and collect more ballots. You've also got the possibility of them being quote unquote lost along the way, depending on whether or not, you know, we, we might question the integrity of will they make the destination based off of who's collecting or will people feel pressured depending on, you know, if I 
I'm a Democrat and a Republican comes to the door and they're trying to help me, might I feel pressured? Questions like that. Yeah, we shouldn't let private organizations do this. Even a non like party affiliated one, some political like PAC should not. Yeah, we shouldn't be we shouldn't let them do that. Because I think, you know, the mere even if it's so think about the way we do um, elections in person now. There's a certain line where you get to the fire department of the school and can't put any signs closer than that yep, line. Yep. You shouldn't be allowed to send a campaign worker to help someone fill out their ballot because that that is a living human <laughs> being that is functioning as a campaign advert, you know, going, oh, and here's how you fill out your ballot. Like that's, yeah, we sh- that shouldn't be allowed. I agree. No, this, this it, I think... It opens up the door for a lot of things that we might not want. Um, and like, I can see why, like, I would love to go to like a retirement home and be like, hey, like old person, like this is how you fill your ballot. Um, but I can also see if I saw somebody doing that, I also might feel like, hmm, like very interesting. Who are you voting for again? Um, <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, I. It, it fills me with doubt, and, and doubt is not necessarily something I want when I'm talking about an election. I think anytime you are not directly at the site casting your ballot, whether it be electronically or physically, depending on how behind the times they are, I think that the more times you change hands, the more chances are, whether it be malicious or incompetent, for votes to be lost, changed, directed, right? Like, the more hands that I have between when I send my ballot and when it gets there, it's possible when someone's going door-to-door collecting ballots, some of them get dropped, some of them, you know, if they're storing them, like, there's just chain of custody is a huge concern when it comes to whether or not evidence can be admissible in court. And it's because things happen, accidents happen. And then we've also got the possibility of fraud. But either way, I don't think that encouraging, uh, especially, you know, regardless of party, I don't think it's a good idea to give them incentive to start just racking up points on the board based off of who they can afford to hire. I think that that will continue to prevent, say, a third party or a fourth party from coming in and actually having a chance because they can't pay to get people or even even, you know, quote unquote, intimidate people to vote for them. But I see a lot more problems and benefits with this one personally. Yeah. But a census like government force that could be sent around to collect ballots that works, you know, under, and I'm wrong, who knows if this is a part of like the, you know, bill, but ideally, at least for me, you know, if, yeah, if we could have government workers, you know, go out there as clerks to help people out, then we could avoid at least some part of that because we at least then have, have the control of that government worker and give them the appropriate, you know, training and make sure they're not wearing, you know, campaign t-shirts or coming with campaign literature yep. or stuff like that. Yep. And I, yeah. And then I think that, you know, still just ties back into that would just be a good, you know, accessibility and a reminder thing. And just for a lot of people where, you know, where it sits in the back of their mind of, you know, oh, I get to, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, I'll get to it provides that, you know, you know, here, hey, you know, take the 15 minutes and do this. And, you know, I can take it with me around on my way. And that also, you know, would solve for our chain of custody where it's just, you know, election worker to the house, back to the election facility. I think even setting up some kind of a way for someone who we mentioned at the beginning, they might not be able to fill this out where they can request that help or get that help. I feel like there's some kind of a system. I'm not necessarily familiar with it, but I, I feel like it might not be quite as accessible as it could be. And so some kind of a reform to that to make it more accessible would be good, particularly if we did this on a, a state by state or maybe a very, very small standard from the federal government might be helpful in that instance. I know me personally, I don't even like having people stacked up behind me in the Walmart line when I'm getting groceries. Like just, I just kind of get more anxious says I'm like, you know, someone watching me, I would not want someone to come to my house. It doesn't mean other people wouldn't, but I personally, it would stress me out. 
I think it's an interesting point that Josh brings up as far as trying to have some, um, you know, a specific group that are governmentally commissioned to go forward and do this sort of thing. But I think one thing that's really important to realize is that even if we like to think that we could trust government actors to be neutral, they are nothing more than individuals and every individual has their bias. While poll workers are constrained by the location and by the rules set up at that location, you're not allowed, like was mentioned earlier, you're not allowed to have certain, um, you know, political affiliation or campaign uh, slogan your products within a certain distance from the polling location. Totally fine, totally enforceable because there's a set boundary in which that can be enforced. If you send a government agent into someone's home or even like offer them up to help, how in the world do you have, other than like strapping them with a body cam and having another government agency to check all that footage, how do you know that they're not advocating for certain political parties, policies, or candidates? There's no way we could possibly know that. And even if we'd like to think that they're good neutral actors, I just don't have that much. I, I think it's a little... It's borderline naive uh, without being too harsh. I just don't think it would be a great idea to have people going into other people's houses under the guise of being neutral and offering what would amount to, quote unquote, help with filling out ballots or directing them in some way. I just don't think it'd be a good, uh, there'd be no way to check and make sure that they were truly being neutral. On that note, do you guys want to talk next about the uh, universal mail-in ballot system? Yes. Okay. So universal mail-in ballots, we kind of alluded to this right at the start. You can currently request a ballot. So I am going to school in North Dakota. I am registered to vote in Tennessee. I did an online registration. You can also do a mail-in version, but it was faster for me to do it electronically online. You sign it, uh, at least through the Tennessee laws. That's what I have to do. I sign it. I get my ballot mailed to me, and then I mail the physical ballot back in. So registering was online, at least for Tennessee. This is not that, because that, that, to my knowledge, is a national standard you can request in some capacity your ballot to be sent to you and then you send it back in. What this would do is, based off of my last address or the most current address, it will automatically send me a ballot. Here's another thing that I want to throw out there before um, we discuss this. This also restricts their ability to update and purge the system, which means that you will likely see an influx in uh, my ballot is sent to my last address but it wasn't updated, or people who have died are being sent out ballots, which means there are loose ballots out there. These are things that we'd want to consider, but ballots are automatically sent on a national level. I think we can look at this as a risk versus reward, uh, maybe, if you, if you want to look at the positive versus the negatives. And the good thing is that um, we can also look at examples of universal ballot, universal ballot mailing being used already in, in, in different states um, that have seen very few cases of fraud and very few cases of actual, like, you know, bad things happening when people just get mail in their ballots. And on the other hand, we've also seen a lot of positive sides of people actually voting and more and voter turnout that is always very low in a country that has that doesn't have a mandatory voting uh, regulations. Mailing for the ballots actually makes people vote more often. Shocking, but true. And for that reason alone, I think that it's a great idea. I would also say a lot of the headaches we have, and I think a lot of the considerations you brought up, Ryan, show us of why a universal system will work. And a lot of, I think, problems we have structurally with our government anyway. One of the great lessons that the United States Postal Service provided to the world was coming to a, a realization that if you can manage the information about a package, you can manage the package. You don't have to know exactly where the package is. You don't have to know like where in the warehouse the pack package actually is. You just need to know you have the information about the package and if you can manage that you're good dead people are being sent ballots because the election commission doesn't know 
they're dead. Um, but the Social Security Administration does know they're dead because they got the report either from the coroner's office or from the family after, you know, mm-hmm. the past, you know, somewhere else in the government, they've alerted the Social you know, Security Administration, this person's dead. Then there's this useful, actionable communication that the Election Commission to use and the Social Security Administration is doing nothing with it. That information is not being managed right. And if we had a universal system that managed addresses, that managed voter registration, that managed these things, this would be fairly easy to figure out because like, oh, you know, where would they get the address from? Well, if you have your job, your you know employer has your address and they fill that, submit that to the IRS every time, you know, you're hired on. They file that paperwork to the IRS. The IRS knows, you know, who they have on track. So the IRS has your most recent address, you know, from your employer and they don't do anything with that information. It's not managed right because all of that system could be integrated. I mean, managing information is the name of the game in the 21st century and our government has very bad databases. <laughs> For all the information they have, it's fairly, it's it's uncoordinated at times. And like this shows it, like how in the world does the election commission not know when citizens are dying? That is easy information to pass along to another government agency. Why is it not happening? And so I think with a larger, more functional system, we would solve a lot of the problems we face and a lot of the concerns, you know, we have about keeping up with people, you know, and individuals, and it would be a more efficient system that way. I also think, you know, voter roll purging is also like a super important thing because as much as we like to talk about dead people as I'll talk about them. If you decide to sit out for one election, you should not have your name taken off the voter roll. That's right. But that's what these states do. You sit out one, you know, midterm election oh you can't you know and then there's a deadline before the um the next election now you can't register to vote just because you know you missed the window and you didn't even realize you were purged off because you don't get a notice they just do it if you're not considered an active enough voter or whatever the requirements the states come up with and um that you know prevents a lot of people voting throughout the country every year and i also think you know we have several countries australia you know for one that runs their elections completely on mail-in voting we know it can work. And as Marcel said, the, the moment we get more people voting f- from it, you know, we're going to see a net benefit. And I think the other note about fraud is election fraud is really, really hard. It's easier to fake ballots and stuff them into boxes than it would be to cast a whole bunch of fake ballots. Because that means you have to have several thousand people because, you know, you got to swing an election. So you need several thousand people in on this scheme to go out to different voting places, to go out and cast fake ballots uh, and to conduct this multi-state several thousand people, you know, gig. And none of them say a word about it to anyone. That's a significant feat. And I don't think there's infrastructure like that that has that type of, you know, either current setup or even the will to do so. Because, again, it would literally be easier to stuff ballots in the back of the room than try to do a coordinated fraud scheme. I I do think that if you're looking at this from a national election standpoint, that would be true. You do, you you know, you're looking at significance. The question to remember is that it's not about will there be voter fraud, but what is the amount? And all laws should be geared towards reducing it. There will always be some level of voter fraud, the question is, is it significant enough to actually have an impact, right? We saw instances of voter fraud even in this last election. It wasn't enough to actually cause a significant difference. Nothing will be perfect, 
So if we're looking at this, what about from the state level, right? Because like I think that Josh, your point does have some weight from the federal level, but this is not just for federal elections. It's a federal declar- declaration on what can and can't be done, but it also applies to, you know, North Dakota's state laws, right? So when they have a state election, ballots will automatically be sent out. No voter ID is allowed. And so that is a smaller number. And I, my personal opinion here is that when you, when you send out more ballots, you increase the amount of chances for fraud. You increase the amount of possibility for mistakes to be made that provides the opportunity and could be capitalized on for fraud. So if we're looking at mitigating the amount of times where fraud can occur, I don't think that this does that. In my opinion, I don't think that the cost outweighs the benefit there or the benefit. I don't think the benefit outweighs the cost. So the first thing that comes to mind with Universal mail-in ballots, you know, obviously with it being universal mail-in ballots, they are well mailed to everybody. In my mind, that sounds like it's opening up a lot of loose ends, so to speak. And when you have that many opportunities for voting going out, um, as Josh brought up earlier, we currently do not have great systems for, um, there's not great communication between different parts of the federal government. It's easy to say, you know, we'd like to condense all of these different functions into one unified body so that there could be, you know, unfettered communication between them. Sounds like centralized power, but it also sounds like a bureaucratic nightmare. I don't know if that's exactly feasible. I, I understand what you're getting at, but I just, I don't see how that would work out. And I don't see it being functionally much different than what we have. Totally cool with a computer system where information is a little bit more easily accessible between different parts of federal government. As far as collapsing all these things into one very large entity, like the different aspects of federal government, making them even more unified, I don't see that bureaucratically being possible or feasible. But anyways, sending out all these ballots coupled with having systems that aren't exactly communicating most accurately, it just really sounds like it's opening up a lot of doors for fraud. You're having a lot of ballots going to dead ends. Um, No pun intended. And I don't know, it just seems like it's opening up a lot of door, doors for fraud, because if you have these ballots going out, they could easily be intercepted by somebody. Um, I really, I'm not sure how difficult it would be to uh, forge signatures on a ballot. I don't think it'd be too difficult to fill one out if it's not yours to fill out, if you could get access to it. And as we saw in the last election, it was an absolute nightmare when it came to verifying votes and when it came to actually counting. And from what I'm understanding from parts of the HR1 proposal, they aren't too interested in election integrity. We're definitely not going to see an increase in verification of votes and ballots. All sounds like it's, uh, I'm not going to say set up for voter fraud, but it sounds like it's really opening the door for a lot more fraud to occur. Because if you have all these ballots going out, you have many more dead ends coming in, and you're definitely not going to have the manpower to check even more ballots. I understand the desire for structural change to occur with our voting systems and to modernize them and everything. I don't think you're going to get any more secure than people going to the polling station and casting their votes themselves. But I really don't see any way that this is going to occur without having any serious issues um, as far as integrity goes. But we also don't see a significant amount more of fraud or mistakes out of Oregon and Washington either. Their elections run just as dandy as the rest of ours do. And, and again, like, sure, you know, taking it to, you know, you know, your less populated states, it will take still, you know, significantly less people than the out, you know, common election. But so you're in a small county of 20,000 people somewhere, somewhere out in, you know, Montana, and you want to shift that election and you got to find, you know, four or 500 votes to shift that election. Where do you find four or 500 extra people in a county of 10,000, 20,000 people that you just ain't, that no one else is going to see, you know, that there's not going to be some big noise. And so you would have to go around and pilfer ballots out of mailboxes 
And that's going to be very noticeable. People are going to be like, oh, the election ballot's out and I don't have mine. Um, what's going on here? And that would get reported. You know, where'd my ballot go? Because, yeah, the numbers go down, but there's still that same kind of a relative mass of organization you need to any election. It's like, where do you find all of those people? How do you take 10, 15 percent of the ballots and defraud them to change an election? Because and you have to think about it, you know, you, you, know, you might think, you know, there's some elections where it comes down to those two or three percent. And that's great and all. But when you're would you? if you would have to go out and fraudulently collect ballots from people, you wouldn't know how those people are already going to vote. So you would just be en masse picking up ballots and have to, you know, make them run accordingly and still have to play the game well enough that people aren't going to notice, you know, a bunch of fraudulent activity. And then again, we're going to notice their ballots go missing. I think it depends though. If you, if you combine these things, right, if we combine everything and this bill goes through, you have ballot harvesting that comes out, right? So then people's votes are being done and you can look by state and by county, not necessarily who voted for what, because you do have a certain level of security with the security envelope and stuff and such. But I can guess, oh, this area and this population Will probably vote X way. Therefore, we focus our efforts. So, like, I think that there is still that possibility, especially when we combine this with you don't have voter IDs. You don't have to have the opt in option for voter registration. When we combine these, that's where it becomes particularly yeah. problematic. So, think about it though, and like testing statistics and seeing whether or not someone, you know, P hacked a paper. If you're looking at um, a state and there's been um, a community that has historically voted Democrat for the past 15 elections and all of a sudden it comes in and that state votes 80% Republican. During the review and looking at that's going to raise like some notice. That's going to be something that's going to be reviewed in court cases as I assume will be the future of all of our elections now litigated out. First off, I don't think any of us are talking about me going to my neighbor and stealing their ballot out of their box. I think it's more like if someone sends me a ballot that's not mine, or if I find I know if I know someone's passed away, or if my you know if I had a family member that passed away and I get their extra ballot, I cast their vote for them. That's fraud. I'm not going to my neighbor and stealing their ballot. Also, uh, if we're talking about a county of twenty thousand, uh, I don't think that scaling up from a state election to now having the federal government all the way in D.C. who doesn't care about any of those twenty thousand people, I don't think that's going to increase the value or that they would place on their votes. I really don't think that if anything, you'd have more opportunity for fraud because the center of power is further away from those people and further from their lives. And again, talking about the center of power and the center of this election being shifted from a state level to a federal level, the idea that they would be more likely to catch it without some incredibly extreme centralization of power, without some incredibly extreme increases in the bureaucracy that go alongside of that, that would end up checking and double checking and making sure of all these things. I don't think you would have as much accuracy going into it. I just don't see all of that getting past the test. And I do think the main thing that will stop that is people noticing their ballots not there. Because, you know, the government could say, hey, everyone's ballot is going to arrive on this day because we're the government and we control the mail. Um, And they must really out. hate some people because some people's stuff takes forever to get here. And, and I think, you know, either people, you're going to have to pick up someone's ballot and fill it out for them. And I'm, you know, sure that can happen to a percent of the population, but there's that, you know, the opportunity is there, but we still have to fall into this motive. And that requires a gigantic organization to do this on any significant level and for it to go unnoticed. And I think that's the real, the real hard part is keeping a secret that big. I think any voter fraud is too much voter fraud. Like I know you're never going to have 100% clean, but I don't think 
even if it was four or five percent that was getting swayed because of fraud and everything, that means there's holes in our system that need to be patched, not introduce a cannonball-sized hole in the bottom of your ship while there are already issues on hand. I will say that you know you cannot deny that the risk is increased if you're just sending a bunch of empty ballots. You know, it's gonna something's gonna happen. But I also I don't think uh, at least I don't think that the like nobody was like you know we're gonna pass universal mail-in ballots to prevent fraud. Like that's not what that's not that's not why they did it. You know that would be a little stupid. But they're doing it, or I think they're doing it. And I think what will happen is that you will have more access to your voting rights. Like I mean, it is it is a fundamental part of voting rights to have the access to vote. And if you know, we know that voting is hard for some people and it's difficult and it's complicated because it's not a holiday yet and it should be. Um, yes. I think that you're just going to, you're accepting this risk. You're not doing this to make things less fraudy. You're making things, you're making these things to make it more equal. And that's my final take on <laughs> why they, I would, I'm, I'm in favor of universal mail-in ballots. You have a lot of faith in logistics capability of the federal government. <laughs> I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've ordered things and they came in at the right time. <laughs> but just because the government by fiat declares something doesn't mean it'll happen that way. I don't think that ballots arriving on time, I don't think that is an exception. And I don't really, I mean, an argument, again, I see, or I can understand the argument from accessibility for a very, very, very small number of people who would be physically incapable of going to their ballot or their uh, polling location. Other than just general awareness, though, I really don't understand the appeal. Like, I understand from a convenience standpoint, but I really, again, I don't think the trade-off is there. I don't think it's worth it. I think the risk outweighs the benefit, as Ryan referred to earlier. Sending out all these ballots, I have yet to hear a convincing argument that it wouldn't open the door for more fraud. Um, I've heard some assertions, but I haven't heard a convincing argument. And I really don't, other than just a general convenience factor, which would you know, in theory, boost voting. I think the better course of action that would not pose as much threat to our election integrity would be to just increase awareness of polling times, to increase awareness of how to vote, etc. This sounds like the kind of fix that should be taken care of in a high school civics class, not from the federal government top down commandeering every election in the country. I think that's a good transition into what is the reasoning behind this? Like, why are we needing to pass these laws? Marcella, you touched on it a second ago, and that was the idea that it needs to be more accessible. So if we look at the amount of the population participating in the elections in 2012, 2016, and 2020, we've seen a consistent increase, particularly in the presidential election, but also at the more regional state levels. We've seen a consistent increase in participation, which means not only are we seeing people participate, but there's more of the people participating. So why would we like like who is being harmed by the current system with evidence that this needs to be passed outside of just, you know, the procrastinators and other people who might not get to it soon enough? What's the justification for that would be my question. The reason the federal government right now is looking into voting rights is in 2012, the federal government lost a lawsuit rolled on the Supreme Court where Article 4 of the Voting Rights Act was stricken down. Article 4 of the Voting Rights Act was the clause that allowed the federal government to observe the former Confederate states' elections laws. And basically, when those states wanted to change their election laws, they had to get it okayed by the Department of Justice before they could 
could do it. The Supreme Court ruled against the Voting Rights Act on the basis that they were only evaluating 14 and not all 50 states. And under some equal protection reading of the law, sure. But it's very important to remember it's not like those states did not earn the ire of the federal government over their voting rights behavior, especially, you know, during the 50s and 60s, where people were killing black men for trying to register and vote and killing white people who and white pastors that walked along with them and shared their cause. The federal government was very vested and, you know, had to use the military in certain instances to make sure voting rights uh, were upheld. So these states earned their ire and the Supreme Court had agreed for a long while um, that they deserved it too. But in 2012, they struck down. Now, this leaves Article 5 of the Voting Rights Act and a bit of a weird state because it allows the Department of Justice to start an investigation and to see if people's civil rights are being violated through election laws. However, Article 4 contained the triggering clause for an Article 5 investigation. And so since Article 4 was stricken down because it was the article that included the observing of the 14 states, the Voting Rights Act no longer has a triggering clause to begin that investigation. And so thus the bill is pretty much inert. And that is not just any voting rights bill. That is the Voting Rights Act that has been renewed since 66. So not good. And the moment Article 4 was stricken down, all former Confederate states within two months had passed and updated the Voting Rights Act, and hundreds of thousands of people were purged off the voting rolls. Early voting was shortened, registration dates were tightened up, and a lot of districts were closed. There's a lot of structural barriers in place to vote. Now, the Supreme Court did catch this instance because North Carolina was being sloppy, but the North Carolina in 2015-ish, I want to say, was looking at redrawing uh, their district lines and redoing their election laws. And one of the investigations that the North Carolina House undertook was identifying what ID law, what uh, forms of identification different ethnicities in the state held, and then clearly clearing IDs that were valid to vote on racial lines. Now, the Supreme Court railed them quite nicely over this because it was clearly racist and discriminating against people on the basis of race. But there's also, if they only got in trouble because they said they were doing it on the lines of race. We're all from Tennessee. Here's a great example about Tennessee. Your faculty ID issued by a state university is good to vote. Your student ID issued by that same university is not good to vote. I would. So let me hop on that real quick to point out that the difference that I, and I don't know for sure the difference on these two, but I do know that at least when I'm employed in North Dakota, the difference between me as a student and me as I'm not faculty, but I am employed by the university. I had to provide and be tracked on a W-2, provide my social security. Um, I also have to provide residency and they have to match. Therefore, I could see where that's not necessarily overt discrimination in that way, but rather there are more forms of security for me as a faculty versus a student, just as a thought. But you give your university your address because they have to know where your diploma is. You give the university your social security number because it has to be linked to your FAFSA. They have all that information if you're getting any loans. You might live on the university campus or have an address, again, supplied to the university because they're at least going to have your mailing address and you might you know, opt in. So at least from being all the information I gave the University of Southern Mississippi to be hired was the same information I gave on my application to be a graduate sitting here in the first place. So at least from my perspective, they have all of this information. And even then, 
it doesn't have to verify where you uh, live. It just has to verify that it's you and that you're registered to vote. And it's a photo ID issued by a state institution. I mean, sure, it doesn't have your address on it, but that doesn't need to match to go vote. I mean, you can have a non-matching address to your voting location. You just need photo ID. You can vote with just your passport and passport doesn't have your address on it at all. Because passport's good for 10 years, so they don't put your address on it. Well, the first fix that comes to mind for me is just to make whatever form of identification standardized and more official. I would honestly take the opposite track and say, no, your faculty ID is not sufficient. You should be using either your driver's license, your social security card, or some other form of federal or state ID that would be not affiliated with your school specifically. I'm all for having more standardized form of ID for voting. I don't think it sounds like the track you're going down is to either get rid of or expand the types of ID that can be offered up, um, even if it corresponds to your social security number or your identi- or your address or whatever, like a college ID might. I still think that tightening up what would be usable would be wise for the sake of having it more standardized within the state itself or even like just a federal identification type thing. And everyone has access to those. If you're claiming that people do not have access to standardized federal or state level identification, such as a driver's license or social security number, that's just not factually accurate. Uh, also in Tennessee, your food stamps paperwork, just the paper, you know, the card doesn't have a voter ID, but the paperwork is going to prove who it is plus the card, is not good to vote. Your concealed carry permit is good enough to vote. Again, important to note, concealed carry permit, your fingerprinted, documented, triple check. So like there are distinct differences. your bank account every week to make sure you don't have too much money or they'll kick you off the program. <laughs> I mean, they got your address. They know where you're at. I mean, that's a lot of government paperwork involved, you know, for that too. And this is, again, just proving that it's you. Like, unless someone's stolen your food stamps paperwork, which again, you might have noticed a robbery. Um, how is that food stamps paperwork not proving, yeah, you mailed this to me. Here's paperwork that a government agency has a government seal on it. It's illegal to forge this. If this is a fake paperwork, you can arrest me for having a fake government you know, seal on it. This is who I am, but it's not good to vote. So there are inconsistencies in the voting rights laws across a lot of the states um, in the country and inside of the states that break down on weird lines that just seem artificial. A lot of the times who this impacts is the working poor and, you know, racial and ethnic minorities in the country who are at sometimes very implicitly targeted because you can't explicitly target people with you know the current law. But if you can find a way to implicitly do it, you can get away with a lot of stuff. This is a lot of the studies of, you know, voter rights, like what they call bull, you know, bull Connor racism or something's being explicitly racist. But now the name of the game is to be implicitly racist. I think a great sign of that is, yeah, which IDs does the state allow to vote with? And how did they come to that determination? North Carolina was very explicit and they got called out. Tennessee doesn't say they're doing anything weird, but just has some pretty weird selections of what ID is good and what ID is not. And so the, the, the need for the federal election is that equal protection under the law should most definitely include elections. And so there's a pressing need to have, you know, equal voting rights for every American citizen. And the only way that happens is through the federal government. To a certain extent, I get where you're coming from with this. But at the same time, there's nothing standing between a black person and a concealed carry permit. There's nothing standing between a white person and a food stamps card. I really don't see where the connection, I understand historically where the connection would be, but it's 2021. I don't really see where the connection between some of these... Like, I'm, I'm with you as far as wanting some sort of standardized version of this is the ID that is acceptable. Totally cool with that. Totally cool with them cleaning up and saying like, hey, look, these types of IDs, these correspond enough to your identity to where we can have integrity in our elections. Totally fine. I think it's a 
stretch to look at all these things. We're like, well, this idea isn't allowed, but this idea is. I think it's a stretch to draw that along racial lines, especially in 2021. I, I don't really see the connection. But the broader point, totally cool with reevaluating what types of IDs are allowed, as long as some form of identification that actually corresponds to the person's federal and state identity is required for voting. Well, I understand, and I'm from Peru, a country that not only has mandatory voting, but also has voter ID laws. The good thing about Peru, I'll say, is that everyone gets one. Like everyone gets an ID. As soon as you're born, there was a big push in the mm-hmm. in the in in the early at the start of the century uh, to give everybody an ID. And it's mm-hmm. a man- it's mandatory to have an ID, but you don't have to pay anything for it. And if you lose it, you it's really cheap to replace it. Um, doesn't guarantee that everyone will have one, but at least everyone, most people will have one, even homeless people. So in that case, it's very easy to require one if everybody has one. And I think it's something, I would love to see something more like that here because it, it makes a lot of sense to me to require one, but only because I've given been given one so easily. I think if things were different, if things were harder, uh, and if there were different standards for different types of IDs, I think I would surely feel different. I feel different in this case. I think that if the government doesn't make it accessible enough for you to get an ID um, and for everyone to have one in the same level playing field, then why would you need one? Why would you require one? I understand the risk, but doesn't mean that I don't understand also the implications of putting all of these barriers into place. Talking then about voter ID, this would say states can't have it. And I've heard a lot in the news that the reason behind this is that there's some form of discrimination that takes place by requiring it. Marcella, you mentioned your country automatically gives them. I know that right now... The DMV does provide just like I don't need, let's say I can't get a driver's license or I don't want a driver's license or I can't pay or don't want to pay for one. They do provide IDs that would work for voting. So with that being available, I guess my question then is going to be, why does the government feel the need to ban the requirement of a voter ID match when I go to cast my ballot? So access to the DMV is probably the biggest reason because you may think oh you know it's just the dmv we can go down there you know you pay 20 bucks whatever the cost of the plastic and you know the clerk's time while you're there at the dmv to keep the shop open great get your id i actually did that when i had to take the act because i was homeschooled and didn't need to drive until i was 18. (laughs) but the problem is a lot of areas don't have dmvs that are close you might have to drive 30 40 minutes to get to the dmv then again it's still getting to the dmv so that means the dmv is usually open during business hours and doesn't usually do night shifts. Um, So that means if you work a normal nine to five, that means you need to take time off work to go to the DMV. This now then assumes you have a job that lets you take time off work that during your off days that you do get off, um, assuming you don't work seven days a week, um, as an off day you do get off that the DMV is open and close enough for you to get to. That assumes you have transportation to get down to the DMV, which you may not have. And that also assumes even if you do have a job that lets you take time off, that you can afford to take that time off as a majority of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, meaning losing five, six hours or a whole day of labor can significantly impact their day-to-day and ability to pay their bills. You know, so that really does make this a lot of economic blocks that get in the way of people just getting down to the DMV and getting that um, government-issued ID. And I think that presents a large enough reason for us to worry. Like beyond all racial analysis there, there is clear economic, you know, barriers to voting. And at that point, if you, even if you think about it, even if everyone could get to the DMV and there's still a $20 ID cost and you have to have that to vote, how is that not a poll tax? 
So I would say it's not a poll tax because the poll tax was one through Jim Crow law. It was racially motivated, right? Like it was specifically targeting individuals who can't pay. And we need IDs for other things. It's not for voting, right? Like it's not just for voting. Now, if you're going to, if you have, I can't think of a person who doesn't have some form of valid identification that would work and would need just the voter ID card. Those instances exist, but they're not common. I mean, what if you're um, an 80-year-old retiree and you don't drive anymore because, you know, your eyes aren't working that great and, you know, you're trying to be safe. And so you don't update your driver's license, but you're an American citizen who wants to vote. You now have to arrange transportation down to the DMV to go get this identification. What do you want to do with it? You just want to vote because you're an American citizen. And even for like a lot of people who may be, you know, 80 or 90 years old, getting out and down to the DMV could be really difficult, if not impossible for them. And those people's medical needs and basis shouldn't exclude them from voting because they can't get down to a DMV. The possibility of the existence of this happening, I don't think is the same, or well, it's not the same, as a large number of people to where it is statistically significant, right? Like when we run data analysis, we're going to see outliers, we're going to see anomalies, and laws should try to catch those, but I don't focus my data or my analysis towards the outliers that are few and far between. When we come to the system of voting, yes, we want to accommodate those people, but we shouldn't be completely revamping laws at the expense of the majority of the population in order to account for those anomalies, right? Like if if this 80-year-old retiree is able to go, he's got the time to sit down at the DMV because he's retired. So like, I mean, I think, there's... <laughs> I, so I, I think we agree then. I think the very a statistical, like the very minimal statistical possibility of someone committing fraud is like a non-issue or like someone voting when they're not supposed to mm-hmm. is a non-issue, then I don't I don't see why we would need to require voter ID laws. If it doesn't make any statistical difference in these situations, I think I think you can, you, you can use that argument both ways. I would also tack on the, we need to pick our outlier. If there's going to be an outlier of fraud or there's going to be an outlier of people not being able to vote because of structural issues the government has created, then I'm going to take the hopeful philosophy that our legal system is based on of it's better for one guilty man or 10 guilty people to go free than one innocent person to go to jail. Like if we have to suffer a 1%, you know, tick up increase in fraud for the rights of American citizens to be equally upheld, I think it's okay for us to suffer a little bit of that harm because they're not anomalies. They're people rights. And at some level, we all agree that sometimes we have to take a hit, you know, here or there for the preservation of our fellow people's rights. You know, we have to see stuff we don't like. We have to hear stuff we don't want to. People get to act in ways we don't want them to. And we say, you know, we can't stop them. It is their right to conduct themselves in the way. And the only way to stop them is to gravely infringe on everyone else's rights. We could theoretically eliminate crime with uh, advanced enough modern surveillance and police system. Yeah, that would be, well, I think most of us would consider that to be a worse future. And we would rather have murderers running around than the government tracking every single piece of digital communication, every single camera with fake facial recognition software um, to that degree. We would say, yeah, we'd rather chance it with the murderers than live through that. And so I would say, yeah, we'd rather chance ourselves with a bit more fraud than design a system of government that knowingly excludes people people and we just look at them and go, sorry, you have to suffer for us. Again, with that cutting both ways, like you mentioned, Marcello, 
I, without actually going into audit statistics from the last election, I don't really know how you'd be able to disprove that. Again, we're stuck in this weird limbo where there's just this assumption that there's no statistical difference being introduced with fraudulent ballots. But without full election audits and all the mess that's gone on with that, I really don't know how you'd be able to determine, particularly with the way election, uh, this past election has gone and I don't know, elections in the modern era, I guess, if we're going to go with that direction. I don't know how you determine that without a significant number of elections under these modern circumstances to provide a large enough sample size to check for statistical significance of fraud. I think it's completely unnecessary to have to consider that if we just keep a certain modicum of voter ID in place. I really don't understand why you would want to uncouple an individual's identity from their vote. I don't like the idea of nameless, faceless votes going out because you don't you don't know who it is. You don't know if they're a citizen with vested interest in their community and their nation. If they're not willing to sit at the DMV for a little bit to get what would be offered and acceptable as an identification for voting at no cost to them other than their time, I don't think they're invested enough to in the nation to want to cast their vote. I really, I don't see the point that's being brought up there. There's a distinction that needs to be made between ID and photo ID, right? There's a lot of states that, well, there's a significant portion of states that don't require ID, but there's also a significant number of states that don't require photo ID. And this is not seeking to prevent states from having photo ID. It's seeking them to not be able to have the requirement of any ID whatsoever. So because of that drop, right, we've gone now from some states require photo, some require just valid, some require none to no state can require any whatsoever. And to me, that's significant significant drop is going to increase the amount of fraud that takes place. We do see a difference in the amount of fraud that takes place with states with none and states with some and states with photo ID that takes place, right? There's go- there is a statistical difference. So for us to drop all states to none, especially at the federal level, I think that's my main bone to pick with this law is that it is a federal regulation to where states cannot do that. And I think that not only is that unconstitutional, it's going to increase the amount of fraud that takes place. I, I, I would disagree that it's unconstitutional because even if, say, they couldn't force states to run their state elections in a certain way, they could certainly force states to run federal elections in whichever way they please. Sure. Because I, I think it is, I think this is actually is a gigantic 14th Amendment issue that the right to vote, one, should be constitutionally enshrined anyways, but to the point, you know, that we consider it to be the right to vote and we would say, you know, that's, you know, on par as a critical freedom along with the freedom of speech. The federal government has a deeply vested issue of making sure, per the 14th Amendment, that the law is equally being applied in all instances, in all cases for all Americans. And election is, you know, a very critical part of that. So it's happens that, you know, to the point of like enforcing election, you know, equality, I, I think the federal government probably has the largest arm of any government. The argument that I would make for its unconstitutionality is that the states were given the powers to determine how their elections are run, both how they contribute to the federal election as well as how they run their state and local ones. That was up to them. So for the federal government to step in and regulate that is a direct infringement on those constitutional rights. We can make the argument that it improves it in certain ways. We can debate whether or not that's the case. But the bottom line is because of that, it does infringe on the constitutionality. Last comments on this portion before we skip to the next one. What are you guys thinking? Automatic enrollment. We want to transition right into that one. We should transition. Okay. I, I've, I've, I've 
trash talk the Constitution, I know. <laughs> All right. So uh, automatic enrollment in voter uh, registration. This would be the idea that every person is going to be automatically enrolled. However, the difference between this law and, say, like Marcelo's Peruvian automatic enrollment is it's not going to just be citizens and eligible participants. It is everyone. So as long as you are enrolled in some form of Medicare, as long as you are enrolled in the DMV, right? So we can have immigrants, we can have green card. Marcelo, you can get a driver's license. You would automatically be enrolled. You would be expected to opt out, but they're not providing any sort of ability for punishment to take place if people don't. So mass influx of automatic enrollment. I think I see where this is going. So you're telling me that they're going to enroll me to vote, but I can vote. So I should Correct. opt out. Yes. But if you don't opt vote. out, then you wouldn't be penalized. Are we sure the law works that way? Because that sounds like someone's clerk made a massive error. They could have. That's My information that I've gathered from what this allows and what it stipulates is that that's the case. You know, if, if, if there's something else out there that specifies something different... Please tell me, but as my, yeah, I understand, that's the well, way it right goes. Now, if Marcelo tried to register to vote, Marcelo would commit a crime because you Correct. have to swear that you're a citizen to vote. And so there's no way they're going to make it to where if you don't check a box when you're getting your driver's license, you commit a felony. That's insane. So what will happen, right? So, and, and again, this is the combination through the bill. So let's say that Marcelo goes to the DMV, he's automatically enrolled. If he wanted to go and vote, there is now, if this passes, there is no requirement of any ID to say that he is who he says he is. He would have a ballot because it would be sent to him because every, every person who's accounted for in the census will be sent a ballot at this point then. He's automatically enrolled, so he's already in the system and he's got all the paperwork and the legitimate documentation, which means he does have the opportunity to say he's someone else because they can't check it. He does already have the paperwork, which means he has the ability to go forward. It's not to say people won't catch it, but we've now gone from I must request and I must show who I am in order to get it to everyone is registered, everyone's in the system, people cannot be purged, there is no ability to require some form of identification, and he's got the paperwork, cast the ballot. If everyone is opted in, that would include people who are not eligible to vote and they would be expected to opt out. I am not trustworthy enough of election commissions to say that they would be perfect in catching every single ballot or even catching every ballot that would uh, push over the line of statistical significance and swaying an election, that they would catch everyone that didn't need to be cast. I don't think the benefit outweighs, or I don't think the uh, risk is outweighed by the benefit that'd be provided. It seems to me that instead of doing universal ballots, you just have the people who are able to opt in, opt in if they're invested enough in this nation to take the time to do so. We've already gone over the fact that there's nothing keeping people from voting anymore. We're not living in the mid-20th century Jim Crow South. There aren't people at the polls that are keep preventing people from voting. That's not legal anymore. We don't have that issue. You can go to the DMV and get whatever identification, uh, bare minimum requirement to cast your vote. I don't see the roadblocks other than the, you know, the time that it would take to do so. But then again, that's just by nature of being devoted to this nation and its institutions. You take the time out to do what you're supposed to do. This is all seems like an argument for convenience more than anything else. And I don't think convenience is worth trading uh, election integrity, especially considering the doubt that's been cast on our elections in the past few years. I have a post article explaining HR1, and that's it's when a United States citizen interacts with a government agency that takes down the information and would otherwise have the ability to enroll them to vote that they would. 
So the automatic folder enrollment would ha happen when you go to the DMV and they know they process you because you mark as your American citizen on the DMV, whether you're getting your driver's license or not. And they'll go ahead and automatically enroll you um, unless you check the opt out. But they will not be enrolling non-citizens into voting. You cannot vote if you are not a citizen. That's a separate law that HR uh, one would have to amend. So yeah, there they were so like when you go to university, enroll. When you go to Medicare, enroll. When you go fill out your IRS enroll you. Uh, basically, just use the information. But yeah, they're not going to be enrolling non-citizens into voting. Um, for all for legal purposes, this is a joke. Um, so I wouldn't so I wouldn't get to impersonate you. I wouldn't be able to impersonate you in an election. You, well, you shouldn't be able to. And again, I think that um, to clarify, Josh, I'm not saying that the government is now willfully enrolling these people in order that they can vote, but rather there is less restriction on who can take advantage of this and there are fewer barriers that people hop if they want to commit the fraud. People who are going to commit crimes are going to commit them. And this goes both ways, right? So like, so how do you register to vote without a social security number? What do you mean? You like you have to put your social security on the form. Sure. So how does a non-citizen get a social security number? I have a, I have a social. I actually have a social. Yeah. And, well, and, and does that social identify your citizenship status? No, no, no. It, it identifies me as a non-resident alien, which is, oh, a, yeah. I think, I think it's a little offensive, but that's okay. <laughs> so uh, non-resident alien. That's the word. They may have done a lot of weird things in this bill, but there is way too many mechanisms in place for someone to accidentally not check a box at the DMV and end up on the voter roll because no legislator elected is left wing enough for that. Bernie Sanders would not write that into a bill. If you lower the standard, and again, this is my point here, is is not that, you know, suddenly every person in America does vote, every person commits fraud, but rather we're lowering the standards. And we have to talk about, do we think that the costs outweigh the benefits? Josh, you raise a good point about the people who exist, who are the outliers and can't make whatever form of ID they need, depending on the state that they live in. The question then is, is that enough to make massive federal reform? I'm still going to say no, but the argument is there. It can be made. So, so the question but of the text that's in the bill, it's when you interact with a government agency and you have to give them all of your information that yep. you would be giving to register to vote, that government agency will perform a check to see whether or not you're registered to vote. And if you're not, they will register you. How, I mean, that is the same as walking down to the election commission office and registering to vote with a clerk there. You can just do that. If the DMV, another government agency that is very capable of proving your status of whatever that may be, whatever criminality status the government may have signed you, your residency and citizenship status, now that agency can just click a button and it enrolls you to vote. I don't see how this is any less secure because this is just the government using its information this is like I said, if you can manage the information about something, you can effectively manage it. So this is now just taking better use of the massive amount of information that the government has and making it efficient and better. But this is the same process. There's processing the paperwork on your behalf for you as the government. This is this is a portion of the bill that I don't have as much of a problem with. To me, it's the accumulation, the all or nothing sandwich that goes along with it. But making this more accessible, so long as there are those restrictions and those checks in place, this portion to me is not as problematic as the other portions. Because it does, in a way, as I understand it, make it more accessible. However, 
with the combination of the other ones, I think that it does increase the chance for fraud. Do I think that this guarantees in the next election, if this were to pass, that that would be the case? No, I don't, because that would be ridiculous. But it does increase yeah. and when you combine them. So, so what this does is some, I, I think some states do have an opt-in voter registration at the DMV. But for at least this section of the bill, this is going to be like the little draft, but the little draft, you know, checkbox on, on, on your driver's license. There's just going to be another checkbox underneath the draft, and it's going to say, "Do you want to opt out of registering to vote?" And I can almost imagine the government bureaucracy of putting those boxes right next to each other because why not? That would make a pretty looking document. <laughs> and there's just going to be another checkbox. You just go, no, you know, yes, I want to register the draft because I have to. And then you can choose, you know, to opt out if, if you want to. So, I, so yeah, I, I think this part of the bill is just smart information. If we're, if, if we're going to require registration, why not do it when we already have the information? All right. So last three that I've got on here. Uh, the redistricting, which I think that that takes a lot of conversation. It might be better to talk about gerrymandering in a separate episode where we can do it justice. Um, it allows for felons to vote. And the thing I forgot to mention at the start um, is that it also, uh, it requires the disclosure of donors. That's another one that we probably want to un unpack in a different episode, uh, because I think there's a whole conversation about free speech and everything else. So, <laughs> Uh, quick comments on the disclosure of donors, the assertion that Congress can make D.C. the 51st state and redistricting. Let's just bundle those real quick. My comments and general comments on that is going to be, I think they've tried to pack too much into this bill and they shut down discussion on amendments to where we could negotiate this. That's why I think it's a problem in general as a collective. Um, I think tacking on DC is a 51st state is just the epitome of our political system. <laughs> yes. I, I do think, though, it is the appropriate level of pettiness that sometimes uh, to be met of the absurdity that is government of, oh, you can't vote to make DC a 51st state. You don't have the power. Aside from them throwing it in here with this election reform bill, the comicalness of, oh, you don't have the power. You can't do this. Okay, so we'll pass this bill and give ourselves <laughs> the power. And now it's okay. We can do it now because we passed this other bill is comical amounts of bureaucracy on felons being allowed to vote yeah and we should have voting booths inside of prisons while they're serving um their time there they're american citizens they are being punished by the state which is a weird fetish of america but whatever but they still have a future here we want them to come out and be normal citizens and reintegrate into society right that is i want everyone wants because we have a funny way of acting like it at times I mean, I'm sure this is probably even a pretty watered down version of letting them like automatic vote, voter registration, uh, vote restoration rather, because uh, usually in most states, even you can get your right to vote back if you're a felon, depending on the crime yep. after a number of years and that varies state per state. And and so, yeah, uh, that, that just seems fine to me once they get out of uh, prison and off, you know, probation. By all legal accounts, they have served what debt they owe to society, and I don't understand why they're not automatically full right citizens again because they've served, you know, they served the time. What's going on? What was the last one? Oh, redistricting. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a swipe at partisan redistricting, partisan gerrymandering, and gerrymandering as a whole. There's probably no real solution as long as the people drawing the maps are the one benefiting from the maps. And probably there should just be like a nonpartisan federal commission that draws districts for the states because the state legislator drawing the districts for themselves and being legally allowed to do it for their own partisan benefit is just political absurdity. Let's, 
Regardless of who's in power, no government should have the power to redraw the election borders to benefit themselves. That's just a authoritarian like tendencies and no one should get to do that so um yeah some like department of state lifer who's been there for 20 years and knows maps i don't know that sounds like a great person for this job not some legislator i'll bring it back then so we'll i'll, I'll start with um at dc 51 now obviously i'm very in favor of it very pro it i also think it's maybe not the right place to put it uh, i don't really know why it's here um Props for trying to sneak it in, but also like I think there's uh, better fights to be fought. Uh, not the time, not the place. I, I want to see it. You know, I, I, it's like I guess if you're if you find like like pretzels and like your Halloween bag, like you were expecting sweets, but it's okay. Like I like pretzels anyways. I think I think it's a good idea. It's just maybe not not where it needs to be. Um, felons, a hundred percent. I think felons should be able to vote. Obviously, people say like, do you want serial killers to vote? Yes, I don't care. Like, that's fine. I, I know plenty of people who are not serial killers and they vote fine. I think it evens out. Everyone should have the right to vote no matter what they did. Or if they're in prison, I think that's a non-issue. And finally, we're distracting a very conversation. Uh, and I agree uh, with the position uh, that says that we should just find a way to make it nonpartisan. So I, I think that redistricting happens too often. And it's it's like a back and forth thing. Like somebody, one side does it and then it's like, well, I'm going to do it worse. But again, I think it's a bigger conversation that will have a lot to say on. I think my thoughts on felons is that there should be a reform system. But I also have the general thought that if you're willing to break the laws, you really don't have a lot of business making the laws for other people. I also think that it's a problem when, you know, there's felonies encompass a broad array of crimes. Uh, there are violent and nonviolent ones. I think that there should be some form of a standardized reintegration system, right? So you can re-earn that ability to vote. I don't think that it should be, you know, hey, I committed murder and I am still afforded the privilege and right to vote for the laws for people who are law-abiding citizens. Like, I think that there can be some kind of a balance between the two. I don't think it should just give it back to them, but I also don't think it should be stripped away forever on a blanket. You have a felony on your charge sheet and you can never get that back. Yeah, I think I have to agree with Ryan on this one. Um, once you commit a felony, once you violate the public trust, once you have uh, committed a crime against your fellow citizen, you have forfeited certain aspects of your rights. That, you know, is the basis for our judicial system. That's the basis for punishment, prison, etc. I don't think uh, if you are, have that much disregard for your neighbor that you're able to, you're willing to violate their rights, if you're willing to break the law, then you're obviously not subject to the laws and jurisdiction of this land, in which case you really shouldn't have any say in directing our nation. You shouldn't have any say in who's going to be directing our nation through your vote. That being said, once you have paid back your debt to society as would be um, that would be the conclusion reached by the judge as far as they would determine what that debt will be, how you're going to pay that debt back. That's the whole legal system. Once you have reached that point, I think that depending on the nature of the crime that you committed, you should be, you know, you can be reintegrated in society. A felon that is reformed is now just a citizen and they shouldn't have their track record held against them if they're reformed and they're a functional member of society again. You know, I guess that would just vary depending on the crime more than anything else since there's such a variety of felonies, which is a weird thing to say. But yeah, you'd I, you'd be able to earn your right to vote back. Now, if you were in the state of, I have you know, offended the law, I have violated the law, I am in prison right now as a felon, <laughs> no, you should not have any uh, say in our elections. That's, that's ridiculous. You violated your right to vote at that point. I don't know why you would want someone who doesn't care about our laws voting as to what the law is going to be. That just seems illogical. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with our hot takes. 
So given everything we've heard today, it really seems like a nakedly partisan issue and a very shameless partisan play to be given by the Democrats. Like has been mentioned earlier, this has been dubbed the For the People Act, as if that there is no reasonable opposition that could be offered and no reasonable discussion to be had, because if you disagree with this, then you must not be for the people. Um, that is intellectually dishonest. That being sat aside, I think there has been some important things brought up today, specifically to call back to some of what Josh said. There are some states that have some discrepancies and some of the IDs that could be used for voting. I don't see that as a racial issue as much as I see it as an issue of logic. I think that there should be a I'm totally game for having states give a standardized version of like these ideas will work and getting even the federal government, if they want to say like, hey, these ideas, these are the guidelines that we're going to give for ideas that could work. I think states should be given the opportunity to adopt those. I'm cool with that. I think that's fine as far as making sure that as long as the ID corresponds to your identity um, on the state and federal level, totally cool with those being a little more standardized. The issue I run into with this bill as proposed is the requirement from the federal government to infringe on states' opportunities to conduct their own elections. Forcing them to do mail-in ballots, which I still have yet to hear a convincing argument that that would not introduce more fraud than is currently in the system. I think that there are some issues with the bill as presented. I think that there are some serious issues and there is no no attention given to the integrity of our elections. And as we move into the modern age with technology and everything, specifically the past few elections, as I mentioned earlier, that should be a primary concern. We should really be concerned of whether or not our elections are actually representing people that are eligible to vote and who care enough about our system, our institutions, and our nation to cast votes in the proper way. Um, it seems to me that what's been offered and what's been discussed today, HR1 would do nothing but um, it may expand, uh, like allow more votes to come in, but it's not going to allow principled votes. It's not going to allow votes from citizens who have uh, who are actually exercising their right to vote. It would allow, it seems like it would allow more fraud than anything else. I don't think this is a fix for a problem that exists. I think that it is an unnecessary complication, uh, if anything else. And as we discussed today, hearing all the opinions today, this really is a defining issue. It's really in the name for Democrats and Republicans. Democrats are going to lean more toward a pure democracy. Republicans are going to lean more on the constitutional republic framework on which this nation is based. I think one of those is going to lean toward a lot more votes being brought in, as if that's a good in itself. I think one is going to lean more toward secure elections with confidence, trust, and votes that are actually cast in the spirit of the system. I don't think more votes is always a good thing. I think votes that are legitimate, truthful, and honest representations of citizens who have the right to vote, exercising their rights, I think that's a good thing, which is why I would end up more defending the Republican side of this specific issue. I think uh, one thing that that I'll say is that you know we promised that we would take each of this each of the pieces of of the entire bill one by one, but we also have to look at the whole. And this is where we look at the whole. As a whole, I love it. I mean, I loved every single piece of it. So obviously, I was going to love this one. Um, but I I do think that it needs to be comprehensive, and I do think that there's a lot of value in trying to pass it all at once instead of trying to piecemeal it through. Because I think that we know that there's been a severe problem with our elections. There's been a trust problem. Um, and I think that the more people feel like they're in control of the elections, it's just going to be the better. I don't think there's any maliciousness behind this. And if you truly think that, you know, I don't know, the Democrats are passing this so they can stop, stop ballots in like resident homes and uh, like win elections that way, then, you know, more power to you. But I don't think that's the case. I think the more people are voting and the more the easier we make it for them to vote is going to be the better. But then again, no matter what I say, I still can't vote. I'm probably not going to be able to for a long time. So yeah, those are my thoughts. I think I think it's a great initiative. And right now it's dying in the Senate. But I, I hope it, it, it makes it in some way. And if not this, you know, 
what's left. All right, I'm going to kick off my hot take by saying I think it's very, very unfortunate that we have such a polarized bill that we're going to get no reform whatsoever. Like, I think there are little steps that can be taken and important steps that should be taken. I think that the all or nothing sandwich and the fact that people tack on their personal and political agendas, right? So great example. Uh, throwing in D.C. as the 51st state and using that as a bargaining chip. I think it's very difficult for these people to be able to claim that they are actually for the people when they're also throwing in their political agendas. Also, shout out to the person who coined that term because who wants to be on record saying I'm against something that's for the people? I think it was a very genius and also very unfortunate, in my opinion, way of coining that because it, again, highlights the polarization and kind of forces people into this position of I am taking a stand against the people when they might not be. I think there's legitimate concerns that take place with this. And here's mine and my hot takes. The first is going to be that I'm opposed to federalization. It's not that I'm opposed to these reforms. It's that I don't like that the federal government through this bill is attempting to force their way into each one of these. It's unconstitutional. I think it's counterproductive. And I think that the harms outweigh the benefits that we get. I also don't think that there's enough of a justification through this current system for us to get all of these packaged in, right? So there's a lot of justification. There's a claim to the justification being that there's fraud, there's suppression, et cetera, that's taking place. But I also remember, I'm old enough to remember that after Biden was elected, we were assured this was both the freest and fairest election. There's a discrepancy in the message there, if nothing else, that you can't simultaneously claim that this person is elected under due process, but also this was so bad, we need to justify going through and gutting the system and replacing it. I think that there should be conversation that comes from this. I think that there should be reform that takes place. And I think that something else needs to be proposed in either the House or Senate that will actually garner some form of bipartisan support in the future. As for my hot take is that the history of voting rights in America is the most honest truth about America. When America was first founded, you had to be a white man with an income above a certain level that basically parsed out to have about a certain amount of land you needed to own and have a plantation to run from it. And if you could bring together that money, you could vote. It wasn't until we got to President Andrew Jackson that all adult white men could vote. So from America's first get-go, it was Uh, a democracy of rich landowners, and then it became a democracy of one gender of one race. The next expansion that then came was to black men. So again, not even to all men, just men of two races could vote. Asians could not vote. Jews could not vote. Um, Even at this time, Italian and Irish people weren't explicitly considered white. And so depending on where you were in, in the country, Irish and Italian Americans could not vote. Only in the 20th century that those became white alongside of your English people in in America. It wasn't until 1976 that unequivocally Native Native and Indigenous Americans got the right to vote. They were not included in the first Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act of the 60s and and early 70s. To this day, there is still a significant political faction in America that is against voting rights. You see this in the bill in Texas that dramatically cut down on the availability of voting, how many polling places there were going to be, when could you register to vote, what procedures could a local polling station um, take. And there's a significant 
effort in this country to repress voting. And that's always been the case. It was the case. That's why we had, you know, there was such call for the, vo the Voting Rights Act. And that's one place I think this bill falls uh, resoundingly short is it does not provide a universal statu or statute for, um, for the Voting Rights Act. The federal government should pass a law that requires all 50 states to submit changes of their voting rights to the Civil Rights Office. Uh, at the Department of Justice, just like the 14 states did um, when the Voting Rights Act was first passed, require all states to get the civil rights clearance to change their voting laws, because that was a very effective piece of policy. And to kind of push back up against a little bit, Ryan said, yeah, it was the freest and fair election we've had to date, but that still has to acknowledge how we've always done elections. And that's going to be through exclusionary tactics. And we have to fight tooth and nail everywhere to get voting rights. And that is the very dire need of the federal government to use the 14th Amendment to guarantee equal protection under the law and to be what is one of the most sacred ideals that America was founded on, which is this voting, which again, it really wasn't, but like what we like to tell ourselves about this country, that it's a fair place to live, that elections matter, then it is perhaps one of the most critical functions of then the federal government to make sure no citizen is living in tyranny of some political party at their state level because they're gerrymandering the districts and not allowing people to properly represent themselves and enacting bad laws that prevent you know certain you know groups of people from voting. I, I think that is one of the most utmost areas of importance that the federal government does is to protect its citizens from itself and from their state governments through making sure the elections are accessible to all because that's how we keep our government in check. That's how we maintain our freedom because America's strong enough. We will never lose our freedom to a foreign country. We will lose our freedom to our own government. People who come and try to undermine elections and take away elections from people, that's a clear sign of what they want is they don't want the people. They don't want popular rule. They don't want you know, a healthy republic and a healthy democracy. And so I would say out of anything that should just um, automatically disqualify you should from ever considering a politician is their stance on voting rights. If you have a negative stance on voting rights, you should not be allowed to hold office. Change my mind. Uh, that is the real hot take. All right. You've heard our hot takes and I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. We'll catch you back here next time. Goodbye for now. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.